All right, good morning, everyone. It's a great honor, as I've said before, to preach the Word of God. We're not just lecturing or talking about unimportant things or, you know, fads, um, whatever the culture brings up at the time, which sometimes we get involved in, you know, depending on a show or a movie that we all really like. Here we are preaching the Word of God. And the reason I say we preach the Word of God is not because we're coming up with ideas and we're reading something and then we're just thinking broadly. We are expository preaching. That means we're going through verse by verse. We are not leaving anything out. And it is for the glory of God that we hear and read and meditate and think about the whole counsel of God. I'm going to be preaching on Romans chapter 6. We have finally come to the 6th chapter. We're going to get into what it is as a Christian, as a believer and follower of Christ, how we are now dead to sin and we should sin no more. So if you would rise for the reading of the word of God, if you're able to, we'll be in Romans And to start off, to get some context, let's start in chapter 5, verse 20, and we will end in chapter 6, verse 4. And the reading of God goes as follows. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father God, we read your scriptures, your word, what you have breathed out for our edification, for our knowledge, for our growth. But ultimately, Lord, these are true and infallible words that teach us who you are and what you're about and what you call us to do, Lord. So as we read this, as we meditate on it, as we go through it verse by verse, we want the Holy Spirit to guide us and to teach us what it is you are telling us, Lord, that we do not misunderstand because this is of utmost importance that we are dead to sin and we will sin no more because we reign in Christ. For these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may sit down, please. So, so far, through the book of Romans, we have seen that Paul has been teaching that we all sinned. We are all born enemies of God. And what does that tell us? That if we're enemies of God, we are to be or will be suffering the wrath of God. But what does Christ do in the 
in the two chapters before this, what was the whole point of the justification by faith? That Jesus Christ died for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve. And now in the court of law, in the throne of God, God has, says, has said, you are now not guilty because somebody has paid your price. Amen. We have been rescued from the fire to come. We have been rescued from eternal damnation. We have been rescued from not having that relationship with our Lord for eternal life. But we must remember that justification is not a change of our moral nature. Okay? Justification is given, is a not guilty to somebody that has already been regenerated, that has been saved, that that new disposition and new nature has come unto us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we are not justified because of our works or anything that we do or by us just saying, you know what, I, I trust in the Lord. It's more than that. It's what the Lord has done for us. And real quick, just to get into the context of what we're going to be speaking about in Romans chapter 6, I want to give just a little highlight of Romans 5.21. Because as you see, as it states, Sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What we see here is that there is the reign of sin in our lives. And then there is the reign of grace. Two parallels. And in that verse, it says, through righteousness, leading to eternal life. So we see that through the righteousness of Christ that is now given to us, we will achieve eternal life. But what is the parallel when you have the reign of sin, when you're still in sin? What is it that it's through? It's not through righteousness. What is the opposite of righteousness? It is lawlessness. And that is what leads us to death. So you have to ask yourself a question. If under the reign of grace, it is through righteousness, and through the reign of sin, it is through lawlessness. If you are under the reign of grace, could you still be through lawlessness? No. no. Why? Because the reign of grace is through righteousness, through the righteousness of Christ. We are called, right, to love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is righteousness. And we don't do it perfectly. Why? Because we still have not been glorified. But through the blood and the righteousness of Christ, now we have been freed to have that righteousness and to perform in that righteousness. But ultimately, the righteousness that has saved us is not ours. It is Christ's righteousness. A perfect righteousness. So that leads us to the first two verses. Because here, as I've titled this section, is living in sin, a contradiction in terms. Verses 1 through 2 state, What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And there's an exclamation mark right there. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now this is the ESV translation. There are a few translations. The American Standard Version, the King James Version, and uh, the the Syriac one, the Peshitta, if I'm not mistaken, where it says, instead of saying by no means, it says, God forbid. Those are strong statements. By no means, God forbid. We can't just live in sin and call ourselves Christians. People do that. But what is it that they're doing? They're blaspheming the name of God because if God has given us his name, we're adopted into his family what are we ultimately doing? We are showing ourselves as anti-Christian by doing that. Anti-God. By saying we're still living in sin. We don't care. We don't want to repent. Or we justify it by taking verses out of context. Which we see cults do all the time. So I want to show that Paul has spoken about this before. We actually went through this maybe about two, three months ago. In Romans 3. Verses 7 through 8, where he states, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, right? That grace may abound. As some people slanderously, slanderously, not, oh, they charge us correctly, slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. That's some serious strong words. I, I don't, I've never actually said that to anybody. I condemn you for what you've said. And I can't say that. Because, but Paul can say that. Why? Because he's an apostle. He's a messenger of God. And he's breathing God's words out from God through Paul in these words. So that's ultimately God saying that. Your, their condemnation is just. That means it's correct. It's right. That's some serious stuff. So this is not a game. I like what Pastor Gerardo says sometimes. Are we playing games? I always like that saying because it reminds me of my mom. My mom would say the same thing. Are we playing games? It's just, I always, I always like that. So let's get to one of the major um, anti-this doctrine, right? The ones that go against this. And that's something called antinomianism. Now, what, what does that mean? The, I remember the first time I heard that word. What, what is going on here? Well, look, in the Greek, anti is against. I think most of us know that, right? It's against. And nomos, so it would be the nomian, right? Nomos is law. So that it literally says, just like in the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, which I think puts it beautifully, antinomianism, the false teaching... That since faith alone is necessary for salvation, one is free from the moral obligations of the law. Are we free from the moral obligations of the law? No, we're not. There's other verses that say we are slaves of righteousness or slaves of Christ. Slaves. And what is the antitype of slaves of, of righteousness? 
slaves or in bondage to sin. So you're seeing two parallels here. Now it's funny because the Roman Catholic Church was accusing Luther, Martin Luther, of his teaching of justification by faith or by grace through faith. Sometimes it's worded differently, but it, it's ultimately the same. As saying that that's antinomian. What you're telling, they're saying, what you're telling people is you're saved, not by your works, so they can sin all they want. And it's okay because they're saved. What, uh, what, is, what is the term that the evangelicals use today? Once saved, always saved. Right? Isn't that a term we hear all the time? Now, that phrase is not wrong. But that phrase is implying something when you've told somebody, just read the sinner's prayer. Don't worry about it and go live your life like you have been. You're not an enemy of God anymore. So when people fault you and do wrong, don't worry about it. You're saved now. So one saved, all we saved. No. Now it calls us to obey Christ. Why? Because we love him. And also, this was something that was brought up in the apostolic church. If you see the council, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, the Judaizers and some of these Pharisees that were sympathetic to Christians, they saw something in there that they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. But what they were coming in and saying, well, you can't be saved, okay, until you get circumcised. That's what they were saying. What are they doing? They're adding works. Instead of saying, well, if you're saved... Ultimately, you're going to obey God and Christ, so you're going to eventually get circumcised. And obviously, that's only for the men. But that's not what they were saying. That's why Paul clearly went against them and told them, this is wrong. It's not by works, apart from the law, saved, but not living for Christ. That is two separate things. So Paul's insistence that the increase of sin is met by the increase of grace leads to the question he now raises and he answers. So great was his emphasis of the freeness of God's grace in the face of sin that his preaching had been accused of these antinomian tendencies. But what is the main idea? That the nature of the believer's union with Christ that his living is sin is not an inconsistency, but, as I said before, a contradiction in terms. It's like calling somebody a married bachelor. You can't. Bachelor presupposes that you've not married or you've never been married, right? And in certain contexts, as we were speaking of uh, in the Sunday school, certain words and certain phrases are used presupposes that the term doesn't actually mean, for instance, Alma, Right? It doesn't necessarily mean that she's a virgin, but it's saying that this was pre-marriage, which presupposes a virgin. That is, it, it's, it's logical. That's the logical way you look at it. It's like saying a breathing corpse. That is contradiction in terms. A corpse doesn't breathe. A corpse is dead. It's just, that's just what it is. So I want to show that living in sin as a contradiction in terms. So 
a question that can arise is, well, I'm saved. I love Christ. I obey his commandments, but I, I don't obey them perfectly. That's all of us, right? But I'm posing it as a question. I don't obey them perfectly. And there's times where not only do I not obey them, but it almost seems like I justify myself or whatever. So what's, how is that not the same as somebody who's not saved? You know, sometimes they do good. Sometimes they go and they give to charity. They, they walk the, 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 the line to go against the, the abortion mills. They, they're against murder. They're against the culture today, right? The LGBT agenda that is going out there that is not only, you know, saying that a man can be with a man and a woman can be with a woman, but they're saying that, that a man and a woman, that's really just an identity, something you choose. It's not biological. It's not how God made you. God made you with the predisposition to be able to choose your gender. Is that really what science teaches now? The scientists are coming out and actually saying that, bypassing everything that they said for the last thousand years, and even more than that. So we have to think of ourselves, how are we different? But this is what I want to show you. In the London Baptist Confession, as we are a confessional church, this is what we believe, this is what we teach. Of course, we don't say that those are inspired documents, they're God-breathed documents, but this is what we've gathered from the Bible and we've put it in an easy way for us to go back and say, oh yeah, oh, and these are the scriptures, okay. An unbeliever, an unsaved person cannot perform good works according to God, through his eyes. Through man's eyes, we can look at people and say, oh yeah, they're doing good, oh, he's a good guy. You know, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good person. He would never do that. But what does the Bible teach? And this is the best summary that I have. Chapter 16. I did cut a few things here and there because it's, a, it's really long. And there's seven actual paragraphs. I'm not obviously going to read the whole paragraph, but I'm going to choose a few things here. In paragraph one, it says, Good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word. So that's number one. Those are the only good works, is what is commanded in the scriptures. Paragraph two, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. So right there already, good works in obedience to God's commandments. Let me ask you a question. How many unbelievers have you met that have done something good and they say, oh, I did that to the glory of God. Most of the time you won't hear it. Maybe you might hear it once in a while by somebody who thinks they're a Christian, but you obviously know that they're not because they don't believe anything. They don't really have any trust. And they'll say something like that. So what you're seeing is that they say that, but they can't say that because they don't have the Holy Spirit. It's, it's impossible. So they're really doing it for themselves, for the ego, for the better of the other person that they either helped or whatever charity that they did. But they didn't ultimately do it for God. That is number one. What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. That's number one. And that trickles down to the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. First comes God in anything. First. We got to remember that. Paragraph three, the summary of that. 
their ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. Again, can an unbeliever do that? No, you can't. Paragraph 7, to finish it off. Works done by unregenerate people do not come from a heart purified by faith and are not done in a right manner according to the word, nor with a right goal. The glory of God. Therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God. When we were not saved, when we were left in our sin, could we please God? Nope. Whether it was for salvation or whether it was for doing his commandments, right? Because I'm going to say that most people, unbelievers, have not physically killed somebody. I mean, we can get into the, the law of, of the mind, right? Having anger ultimately leads to that. But they are not doing it for the glory of God. We were not doing it for the glory of God. And we still struggle with that as saved people, as the children of God. Is there times where you do something and you do it because it's good, but then you realize, you know what, I didn't do that for God. I did that because I don't want to suffer the consequences. We've all done that. I put myself right there, right, right up front. I, I do that all the time. And I think to myself, that's not right. I need to do it for the glory of God. Not for my ego, not for the way people look at me, not for what my wife says or what my mom says or what my work says. I got to do it for the glory of God. And one thing we need to realize is that God sees and hears and knows everything. So that's even here. That's even here. Stuff that I don't project out physically. So, how do we back this up? How can an unregenerate person who does not have a purified heart, how can they not do these things how, can they, how come they are sinful and they cannot please God? What does John 15, 4 through 5 say? This is Jesus speaking. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not you can do certain things. Nothing. And it says he, right? In this context, it's speaking of both men and women, bears much fruit. So again, living in sin... It's a contradiction in terms, but it also presupposes, as is taught in Scripture, that you must bear fruit. That's a hard thing that I had to learn, let me tell you. If it wasn't for uh, two different people in my life, my mom and my cousin, Brother Eric, who told me these things, they brought this to my mind. My mom actually offended me, but... The point is that offensive, that offensive talk that she gave me worked because it got me thinking. It got me realizing my heart is not in it. My mind might believe everything that is here in the word, but my actions 
are telling me that my will does not want to do what God says. I realize that. Obviously, the Holy Spirit made me realize that. And thanks be to God that he has rescued me from that fire, from that wrath. Also, what does Paul say in Philippians 2.13? He says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Does God work that in unbelievers? No. Ephesians 2.10. Again, Paul. Paul, throughout all his letters and epistles and everything, he hammers these points down. There's, There's a few themes and subjects that he hammers over and over and over again. This is one of them. So this is of utmost importance. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only are we walking into these good works, so saying that it's really not coming from us, it's coming from God, but they've been prepared Bears much fruit. It's been prepared beforehand. You can't get around this. You can twist the scripture to get around it as many cults do and sometimes even Christians do with certain texts. But you can't get around this. Now, verse 3. We're going to just touch real quick. This, Paul, later on in the chapter, he's going to speak a lot more about these uh, themes of Dying and being crucified and then being raised with Christ. But verse 3 says, Do you know that all of us, see all of us, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So not, you know, we were baptized only in the resurrection of Christ. No, we were baptized, and not only in his crucifixion, but in his death. Death to self, death to the old man, the sin nature. Put that, that's gone. And so you might ask yourself, okay, I've heard of baptism, I've seen it done, it's been a long time. What is exactly baptism? What, What does it mean, right? It is an outward sign of the new covenant, the covenant of grace that Christ has given to us. And it signifies being cleansed and of remission of sins, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a sign of that. It's pointing to that. It doesn't do this. We are not the Church of Christ cult that believes that you are saved by baptism, same as the Roman Catholics. This is a sign that points being buried and raised together with Christ, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, being adopted into the family of God, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So these are a few points. I mean, we could go on and on and on, right? But these are some of the major points kind of tied to what we're talking about. It is a sign, an outward sign of, an, of a reality. Just like circumcision was, it was a sign, Right? Of saying they're the people of God. Just like my wedding ring is a sign that I'm married. I don't need this. 
to be married. I don't need this for my wife to know that I love her, but what does this tell the world? I'm married. Any other woman? Sorry. I know you guys are lining up, but I'm just kidding. But that's the point. Everything, everybody else, and in this culture, everybody, male and female. Nope. Right? I'm married, and this is the sign and seal of my marriage. Just as baptism is the sign and the seal that all these points have happened, that sign of the new covenant. I'm in the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Amen to that? And Paul here quickly does speak about this again in Colossians 2, 11 through 12. So this is just for context so you can see that Paul continually speaks about this, not only in Romans, but in other letters, where it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. See, an inward reality. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's why baptism is important. It's not necessary for your salvation. Case that could be presented, the thief on the cross. He was not baptized. Outwardly. He was baptized inwardly. Either the circumcision of the heart, if you want to use that terminology, or the baptism in his soul. He was cleansed. He was regenerated by God to actually have Jesus himself tell him, today, not in three days, today, you will be with me in paradise. Got to remember that. And the last point in terms of the chapter, oh, I'm sorry, not the chapter, the, the excerpts one through four, right? Is we are a new creation. What does Romans 6, 4 say? That's our, our last verse. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. New creation. Not walking in the old ways of life. Notice it doesn't say that. In the newness of life. As Paul explicitly states in Ephesians 4, 23-24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. See how there's old self and new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you're created in the likeness of God now in, the, in this new creation, in true righteousness and holiness, can you live in sin? You can't. It's, it's 
a contradiction in terms, and it's an offense to God. And ultimately, if he's the one that has made you a new creation, he is the one that's working in you, does God fail? God forbid, right? And Paul also states in second, that can't be right. I think it might be second Corinthians. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's more verses. And you guys all know this. If you've read the entire New Testament, it's, it's so many. And it is a theme, a subject that Paul and others too, like John and Peter, hammer into you over and over. Oh, and James, right? Because faith without works is a dead faith. So it's a serious manner. So what is the application for our daily practice? First of all, we are justified by grace through faith. So I want, I, I've been, I could scare a lot of people by continually saying, don't live in sin, don't live in sin. You cannot live in sin, it's wrong. And then you sin, and then you're like, oh no. Didn't Deacon just say, you can't be living in sin? Doesn't Paul and John and Peter say that? But remember, we are justified by grace through faith. Check out this quote by R.C. Sproul. I think it's beautifully said. I can't do better than, than he has in this sense. Justification may be defined as that act by which unjust sinners are made right in the sight of a just and holy God. See the words there, unjust sinners to a just and holy God. Again, we're not playing games here. This is a just and holy God who hates sin. And even in the Psalms, says, I think maybe more than twice, but at least twice, that he hates the wicked. It's a serious matter. The supreme need of unjust persons is righteousness. It is this lack of righteousness that is supplied by Christ on behalf of the believing sinner. Justification by faith alone means justification by the righteousness or merit of Christ alone, not by our, our goodness or good deeds. And I'll add because we don't have any apart from Christ. That is justification by faith. So when you get scared, oh, I sinned. Or, I, you know what, I'm, I'm really struggling with the sin. I will say two things. Number one, you are justified by grace through faith. You cannot lose your salvation because Christ preserves you. And do whatever you can with that struggling sin to cut it off, as Jesus has said. Because it is a matter of obedience to Christ in this sense. It's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of obedience to Christ. And we all have something like that or, are, or will have something or have had something. So we all fall in that. 
at one point or another. And again, I'll reiterate this point as our application for our daily practice. Go and sin no more. As Jesus said in John 5, 13 through 14. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had, had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is after he healed him. And said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the reason I brought this up, that term, that nothing worse may happen to you. You all know that our sins have consequences. And I'm speaking as believers, so we're not speaking about losing your salvation or anything like that. Our sins have consequences. Sometimes a sin that you did 10, 15 years ago comes back to haunt you, right? Many people that happens. It sort of happened to me financially, right? I just being negligent with my finances and it came back to haunt me. Old sin, but it still came back. There are consequences. So any time that you sin, there could be consequences in this life so go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And ultimately, because we want to obey Christ. Our number one objective as children of God, as being part and members of the bride of Christ, is that we are to love our God and we are to obey Him. So we do not want to continue to be like, Sorry, God, I sinned once. You don't want to do that. That's how I look at it. Because every sin, if he hates sin, that means every time we sin, it's like a slap to the face, metaphorically speaking. We're the children of God. So go and sin no more. And as Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14 states, and this goes more broadly to any that is listening, hearing this, or... Um, might listen to it later on. Either whether you're not sure if you are saved or you know you're not saved. Here, Solomon states, the end of the matter, in other words, the goal of the matter. All that has been heard, fear God, keep and keep His commandments because this is the end or the goal of the matter for all mankind. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So we need to remember that. As children of God, we have the great and beautiful faith and hope that we will be glorified. One day we will be face to face with our Lord. But while we're here in this fallen world, we need to go and sin no more. And we need to disciple the nations, as the Great Commission says. And to finish it off, I have a word for the young. Those are the children and those that are still fairly uh, getting their, their life you know, in order. That could even apply to some that are in their 20s. Listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12. Verse 1, 
Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days happen and the years draw near in which you will say, I have no delight in them. That's twofold for those kids, if, if you're listening. Fear God. Obey God now. Because if you wait until later, which is not guaranteed, you're, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be issues. There's going to be problems with your sin that come back and haunt you. I think back, grew up in the church, but my teen years and my 20s and even some of my early 30s had no care in the world of pleasing God, of obeying his commandments. And now I look at that shamefully and I have no delight in thinking about that. Obey Christ now. Go and sin no more. And trust in God's grace and mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful because you are a God that is merciful. You are a God that is good. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper... We want to confess any sin that is an offense to you, which is all sin. We want to cut that off from our lives. We want to fear you, Lord, that respect that it, and that honor that is due to you. We want to glorify you, Lord. So please continue to work in our hearts. Sanctify us with your Holy Spirit. So that as we come forth to worship you and here to eat and drink your body, metaphorically speaking, your presence being here, it is a beautiful ordinance that you have given us to remember the work that you've done, a work that we do not deserve. So Lord, May you be blessed and glorified and worshipped in everything that we do because that is the end of the matter. For all these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.